0: Welcome to The Observatory, I'm Jessica Helfand.
1: And I'm Michael Beirut.
0: The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. On each episode, we talk about a few topics that are on our minds and in the air.
1: In the beginning, there was only one Barbie. Um, Barbie was tall, she was light skinned, she was blonde. I distinctly remember her being dramatically busty and uh, improbably thin. Uh, for most girls, she represents a physical ideal that is impossible to achieve. For most boys, represented a unlikely, you know, expectation that women would actually have those proportions. And as a result, there have been generations of criticism and misgivings among parents and other adults about kind of what Barbie represented. Designers have created lots of other dolls that they have portrayed as better role models for the girls of today. And now suddenly, Mattel, the maker of Barbie, has unveiled a new set of Barbies. There's a short Barbie, a curvy Barbie with hips, and Barbies that come in seven different skin tones. Jessica, what do you make of this?
0: Well, you know, you have to ask yourself what took them so long, but it's certainly a a cultural moment where this kind of uh, representation of diversity makes a lot of sense. You know the bigger question I think, looking back, is is this idea of the visual nature of the toy and how the toy becomes gendered. Uh, you've got these wonderful things like Lego and 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 building toys, science toys that that would seem to be, uh, you know, uni, unisex. Uh, But Barbies have always been for girls. G.I. Joe's have always been for boys. And the the Barbie thing has a lot of controversy ever since it was introduced in 1959. I mean, there's some unbelievable Barbies that have been introduced over the years. I don't know if you know about this, Michael, but there was Barbie on a diet who came with a little book called How to Lose Weight. And on the back cover of the book, it said, Don't Eat. (laughs) There was seriously huge, huge letters across the back. Just don't eat. There was a Barbie that came with a little pink scale with the number permanently Set at 110 pounds, which you know, for Barbie was meant to be, I think, about 5'9, five 5'10. Five this is, you know,
1: really not a realistic figure for a woman of that size. And then, hey, Jessica, wasn't there, wasn't there, is, is Barbie also like the math is hard? Was that Barbie too? Right. So, teen Barbie, uh, you pulled a string. I can
0: recall as a little girl having getting a talkable Barbie when I was about eight. And, uh I was a sort of strange child and I remember if you held the string very slowly as it was going back into her body uh she said she, what she was saying was let's have a costume party and I found if I, if I held it very slowly it more sounded sort of she had this sort of whiskey tenor she would say it sounded a lot more like she was saying let's have a cocktail party. Which my sister and I thought was
1: great fun. <laughs> like Elaine stretched Barbie, yeah.
0: On the scale of controversy, uh, the, the talking things is one thing. But I think what you're getting at and where these new Barbies are certainly coming from is the idea of a physical ideal, a visual ideal that's no longer based on this sort of completely uh, non-realistic set of proportions.
1: Yeah, and I think it's odd. When you look at um, the original design of Barbie, it's so similar to... You know, the Vargas girls that were illustrations in Esquire and, you know, it was, it was really, it seems to me, a distinctly male idealization of the female body.
0: I know and, that when I wrote my
1: book on scrapbooks, one of the things
0: that interested me to discover was that the Sears Roebuck catalog, which was back in the days when you didn't have a lot of cultural distractions a really visual, compelling compendium of information for the whole family. So dad could look up tractor equipment, you could look up books, and you could buy socks, you could do all these things from Sears Roebuck. But after they reached their use, after they were no longer, uh, I think they were supplanted by the next year's version, mothers of little girls in, say, the early days of the 19th century would allow their daughters to cut up the Sears Roebuck catalog to play house. And they were sort of experimenting with these domestic skills that they would later inherit. How to decorate a room, how to serve a dinner, how to dress the baby, right? So there was this very gendered activity around little girls and domestic tasks that were, in a sense, privileged by visual things that came their way. Uh, It's not so surprising that little girls would want to start to play dress up, dress the baby, dress the house. And one of the really interesting things when you look at Barbie history is looking at the house and the furniture and there's a great commercial on YouTube where you buy the Barbie house that has its own handle and you put it away so that mom doesn't have to clean up after you. So mom is part of this generation of domestic women who are expected to just clean all the time. And they point, she points around the room and says Barbie has a desk, Barbie has a closet, Barbie has a hi-fi, right, a high fidelity system. So this seems pretty innocuous, right? Like you're playing house, you play dress up, big deal. But what gets really weird in the history of Barbie were how many judgments they made that were so off. There were there were Barbies introduced where you could actually they grew up over time and their breasts grew. There was Oreo Barbie. Oreo Barbie was a black Barbie. I mean, just so morally wrong on every level you can't imagine that Mattel allowed their designers to do that.
1: I dimly remember when I was growing up that Barbie wasn't was less about domestication and more a way for preteen girls to kind of rehearse this equally idealized vision of you know, high school popularity and just kind of zipping around in the Malibu convertible and having boyfriends like Ken. It just seemed like this uh, socialization and happy, idealized suburban lifestyle that, again, was probably uh, out of reach for many girls and kind of hopelessly uh, fantasized and probably just as demoralizing in its own way as anything else you know so really is a uh, um you know it's certainly an iconic uh uh, symbol in american culture and that makes i think the um You know, the the transformation of it that they announced, you know, all the more dramatic. So I I think it's, you know, it's on the cover of Time magazine. Uh, Curvy Barbie is like on the cover of Time magazine this week. It's, if nothing else, just a master stroke of public relations by Mattel in the face of what I understand is uh, slumping sales. Um, Do you think it's on balance a good thing? Jessica?
0: I think on balance, uh, redesign is often a good thing, particularly when it aligns with some kind of societal value. There's always been controversy around the idea that Barbie promoted a body ideal that was unrealistic, that uh, certainly as time went on and more mothers were themselves liberated from the domestic sphere, they wanted the dolls that their children played with to represent values that maybe were not so self-limiting. But to come back to the design conceit, I mean, yes, we can look at skin color and body type as the primary go-to obstacle in looking at something that well, oh, for one thing, really sets your sights on a child's external value as opposed to their internal value. I mean, it's not I don't see a lot of little girls playing with an Albert Schweitzer doll, right? It's not like there's gonna be quickly the Dalai Lama doll. I mean oh, although maybe there's boys, a market yeah. they're waiting to happen. But I just wanna come back for a second before we let go of this, Michael, the design decisions that have been made over time. Okay, so nineteen seventy-five, Skipper, Barbie's little sister. Mattel introduced the growing up skipper version where, when you rotated her arms, her waist would elongate and her breasts would grow. Really? This is 1975. Wow. Now, okay, so you, over time, you've got, you know, different versions of glam. They're competing with American Girl dolls, which certainly were meant to be representative of women's achievements. You know, the Annie Oakley doll, the, you know, I don't know what, what other uh, characters there were, but certainly, you know, the idea that the, the, the young girl would aspire to some heroic version of herself in a previous generation as opposed
1: to, you know, no. Or, or at least scrappy and industrious Right, and, right, uh, and they're, and they're, and yeah, they're smart, doing stuff, right? They're girls. actually yeah. getting yeah. things done, right? Yeah. And, and participating in a simplified but uh, legitimate version of different eras of American history so that's actually rooted in something beyond the world of just uh, uh, mindless fantasy.
0: But here's the one that gets me. Barbie Forever, okay? I think this is 2006. Barbie Forever came with a dog, a dog that pooped, and a pooper scooper.
1: Wow. And So guess what? It's a little toy dog that poops, that poops toy it's poop? It's Tanner the
0: dog. Wow. And for $125, your child could scoop up the dog poop, which you can imagine was pretty small. So how long do you think it took Mattel to realize this was a choking hazard? Right? <laughs> Video girl Barbie came with a working camera in her chest. Also recalled. And this doesn't even get into the ones in the 70s and 80s where the dangers of tanning hadn't been documented enough so that Sun Gold Malibu Barbie was meant to get tan lying out in the sun. So all along the way, yes, she's got the tiny ridiculous waistline. Yes, she's got the you know, the cup size that nobody with that waistline would ever have. But along the way, all of her activities represent Kind of stupid things, things that are not necessarily uh, intellectually based, they're not necessarily culturally based. So these are judgments as we talk about designers out there in the world making decisions and making choices and doing research and working with statistics that actually have huge impacts on consumers. One has to wonder how these things were allowed to come along and and weren't really questioned with a much more kind of fastidious sense of values.
1: I can speak with just the slightest degree of personal experience because at one of my first internships, when I was at the University of Cincinnati, I worked at an ad agency and uh, one of our clients was uh, a local toy company uh, founded mid-century America called Kenner uh, that was uh, eventually uh, purchased by and then closed by Hasbro. Uh, But um, I remember being just as an intern, being on the outskirts of a couple of meetings and um, being struck by the comic incongruity of all these dolls and toys, most of which I recall being aimed towards girls, being discussed by older white guys in suits, you know, with absolute earnestness. You know, their paychecks and their bonuses and their livelihoods depended on it. And I remember it just being sort of like a real man's world where people would just talk about what what would sell, what wouldn't sell. That seems so anachronistic, you know, and you can sort of say, well, that was the tail end of the Mad Men era in the, um, you know, mid-'70s. But then we also have the rather shocking lesson just delivered of the lack of Ray dolls based on the female protagonist in the new Star Wars release. You know, the people that were commissioning action figures based on the characters from Star Wars, they decided not to uh, uh, invest in a lot of these dolls for the female character on the premise that boys will not play with girl characters. The things you're saying just sound so preposterous about the history of Barbie, but somehow uh, the decisions that are being made by the American toy, toy-making industrial complex seem to have not evolved that far at all.
0: One one of the things in the Time magazine article that you mentioned, there's a video that Time posted online, and I believe it was in that video that one of the designers, uh, Mattel, talked about how important it was to make a doll that was relevant. So their choices of how to uh, earmark relevance for girls who are in the Barbie zone and that demographic um, lead them to make all these choices. This is another one Tattoo Barbie, 2011. Like, w- what mother and father want to buy a Barbie that is going to lead their child to want to put a, a butterfly tattoo on her stomach? Aww. Right? So, you know. Oh, my I, Lord. How, how is it possible? I'm sure that there are I mean, toy designers across the world who look at all sorts of important things that have to do with being relevant while also being safe, while also being maybe inventive, if having curvy shaped. Little Plastic Girls is going to uh, sell toys, then More Power to of them. But I, I think that their track record does not portend well here.
1: Barbie, beautiful
0: Barbie, I'll make believe that I am you.
1: You can tell it's Mattel, it's swell.
0: We're deep into the preparations for Taste Design Observer Symposium on Food and Visual Culture coming up on the 12th of February in Los Angeles, downtown at the Los Angeles Theater Center. We can't wait to see some of you there. And tickets are still available. If you uh, enter TASTE, in all caps, at checkout, uh, you can get 15% off. Uh, The website is taste.designobserver.com.
1: And this is really going to be a cool symposium, and symp- you know, symposium always sounds like kind of a, a daunting sort of word to me. It sounds like it's going to be educational um, to a fault. But what's great about this is that um, this is not about design in the world of theory. It's about design in the most ubiquitous and everyday and universally relevant sense it's design in the world of what we eat what we put inside our bodies why we choose to eat what we eat why other people choose to sell us what they sell us to eat it touches almost every aspect of the design experience and so It's such a rich uh, subject for discussion and a fun and delicious uh, subject for discussion as well. Uh, We are really thrilled that uh, Linda Deacon, who's the managing director of IDEO's food studio, is going to be joining us. So it's really potentially about uh, something that I think some of our speakers feel is the most urgent public policy issue facing this country and indeed the world today.
0: And I think the the role that design plays may not seem evident beyond the, the, the sort of patina of the things that we produce, the designs of restaurants and menus, and we'll certainly get at some of that. But I, I think this is a serious topic, uh, serious in terms of uh, a reality that we don't stop and talk about enough, food waste, food policy, sustainability, agrarian economics. Uh, Mark Bittman, who is one of the speakers, who's uh, was for many years with the New York Times and is now at Berkeley uh, recently said, it's hard to imagine having a food supply as abundant as ours and doing a worse job with it. And I think that really gets at the heart of what we're going to be talking about at Taste. Uh, he'll be joined by a very interesting guy called Ricardo Salvador, who's from something called the Union of Concerned Scientists in Washington. Uh, I think this idea that, that Linda Deakin's going to talk about and a little bit of what, what Bittman and Salvador are going to talk about uh, gets at the future of what we're doing, but in order to look at the future, we need to look at the past. And here we're going to have uh, a very interesting PhD candidate at the University of Pennsylvania, whose research is on the history of artificial flavor. Uh, and this is a pretty interesting topic for designers. I mean, how the, you know how we've been duped, how we've been kind of you know cuckolded into thinking that things are safe that aren't. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about the myths of, of, you know, the urban and the rural, about, you know, certainly Ron Finley, who's a gardener and a kind of a renegade guy, calls himself actually a renegade gardener in Los Angeles, started an urban garden in South Los Angeles where he lives, and is really trying to revolutionize and really catalyze the way uh, people in a uh, predominantly, I think I think characteristically in an area where they maybe had less access to fresh food, and less of an educational infrastructure for understanding how to uh, a- actualize their own their own nutrition, their own diet, how he's really been able to turn that around. And I want to say one other thing, which is uh, the thing I think I'm the most excited about, is that we reached out to people for this conference. If you're thinking of coming, just, just consider this. A lot of design conferences invite a lot of designers. Fair enough. That's what we are, that's what we do, that's who we know. But we realized that the Design Observer Symposium Series really looks at design and its intersection with other things in the world. Last year it was sound, this year it's food. So I was interested to know, Michael, I didn't know if you knew this, that the School of Public Health at Berkeley uh, actually has a design and innovation program. And we've got six students coming from that program. And uh, we've got two wonderful uh, hosts of two wonderful programs from KCRW in Los Angeles. We've got Francis Anderton, who hosts the show DNA. We've got Evan Kleiman, who since 1998 has hosted the show Good Food. Uh, so there's going to be a lot going on. It's going to be an intimate conference. It's not huge. We've got tickets left. Uh, if, if you if you want to go someplace where it won't be snowing in February and you care about how you as a designer might be able to change the world one step at a time, uh, this is where you want to be.
1: Yeah, and that last thing you said, uh, changing the world one step at a time. I've been to so many design conferences where it's all about the power of design and how we can really make a difference. And the issues that are presented often are just so um Vast and global and daunting and what I find really interesting about this subject is, you know, exemplified really by someone like Ricardo Salvador, you know, the Union of Concerned Scientists was originally founded uh, to focus on the threat of nuclear war and the escalation of weaponry between nations. And the scientists were concerned because they were complicit in having invented the atomic bomb, the hydrogen bomb, and these advanced weapon systems. And they expanded after that to get into climate change, fossil fuel consumption, stuff like that, all these really big issues. And the fact that um, uh, Ricardo Salvador is focusing on food, takes those issues, which for any one person, any one designer, any one attendee at a conference just seems so out of reach. I don't have any, you know, day to day contact with nuclear weapons, right? I just don't. Climate change happens on so vast a scale that, again, we all individually try to do the right thing, whether it's, um, you know, how we choose to make use of transportation, other things like that. But still, again, huge forces out of our control. Food supply has that amazing interplay between the universal and the Individual, the global, and the local. You and I and every single person listening to us is going to consume food today. And the choices we make about how we do that and what we eat and where it comes from and uh, how we actually participate in that network is really relevant. And I think it's really interesting that the range of activity that an organization like those concerned scientists are involved with is not just uh, the big issues that seem out of reach, but issues that are tantalizingly not just within reach, but that within... An hour or two you'll be participating in as you eat breakfast or lunch or dinner or have a snack or have something to drink.
0: Sure we eat. Sure we maybe we don't eat junk food and we want to have health food maybe we can even have a garden in our tiny apartment because you know you can actually do that now you can have organic seeds growing on your on your windowsill but how are you going to impact other people's lives and i think designers uh, increasingly are starting to realize that you can't just be a designer anymore you have to think about consequence and i'm beginning to think that maybe that's the value of a really inspiring conference is to think about bringing people together and sending them back out into the world understanding how The things they make and produce and harvest and collaborate on and mine for new sources of content ultimately have consequences that are far-reaching and that the designer's role is to really understand how to do that in the best, healthiest, most productive way.
1: Well said, and I'm really looking forward to this. It's Friday, February 12th at the Los Angeles Theater Center, Taste, a symposium, from Design Observer on Food and Visual Culture. There are tickets still available at taste.designobserver.com. Uh, what's that discount again? All capital letters, T-A-S-T-E? That would be it. Discount code, a uh, real bargain, and um, you'll, you will be amused, entertained, inspired, educated, and you'll leave there with the tools to make a difference in your life and in the world, we hope. And we hope we see you there.
0: Four, three, two, one, and liftoff, liftoff of the 25th Space Shuttle mission, and it has cleared the tower. I don't know about you, but I remember where I was on the 28th of January, 1986. I was working in my very first design office, a tiny little room. There was no internet. There was no television. We had the radio on. We had the radio on because it was the launch of the Challenger space shuttle. And what was important about this space shuttle launch was that for the first time, the nation watched a civilian go up in space. And that civilian was a school teacher.
1: There was a, uh, a sense of routine that had set in at that point. And, uh, uh, you know, the space shuttle was taking off and landing frequently at that point and it was not they didn't have wall-to-wall coverage on television stations anymore I think uh, uh, CNN which is then a fairly new network may have been covering it Uh, but I think outside of the novelty of the teacher in space program being inaugurated with this uh, uh, launch it was sort of just uh, you know an everyday event and uh, the horror of the explosion was made doubly so by the fact that it wasn't a thing where people were watching it holding their breaths with their fingers crossed. It was a routine thing. This is what people did. This is what NASA did. They put people up in space.
0: I think what's for me really uh, something that, that, that is critical to that moment is remembering how you got your news and what you remembered about the news you got. Where'd you hear it? Did you go home and watch it on the six o'clock news? Did you hear about it when you went out for coffee with a friend? Right? Because now we get our news. We hear about things so instantaneously. You know, I'll be sitting with my daughter making dinner, and she'll get an alert on her phone about David Bowie dying or something. We know instantaneously, and we see these things. And I I find myself wondering 30 years from now how how we'll remember the news that we get now because it travels in such different ways.
1: Yeah, and, and I think nowadays news just kind of arrives constantly, and news of trivia, news of things of import, news of every scale and every non-scale kind of keeps arriving constantly. So uh, that idea of like that one big thing where the entire world collectively gasps, you know, happens, uh, you know, much more rarely now because we sort of are wheezing and gasping over a lot of other smaller, more trivial things. In the aftermath, people went back and tried to figure out what happened, whose fault this was and everything else. And they discovered it all comes down to a, uh, a thing uh, called an O-ring that secured a... Uh, Um, I think a fuel tube that uh, was part of the uh, shuttle's assembly and its launch apparatus' assembly the o-ring was this fairly simple rubber thing that just kind of like you know sealed the connection between these tubes and a lot of the statistical analysis that had been done before and leading up to the launch had to do with was the you know would the o-ring be secure if the temperature was below 50 below 40 below 30 and um there's a uh there was a document that actually purported to kind of provide that analysis that became a uh, a real demonstration by uh, a designer and thinker whose name be familiar to a lot of our listeners, Ed Tufte, appears in one of his books where he says, you know, this is how bad information design actually resulted in disaster, and he shows the document that analyzed the uh, performance of the O-ring at different temperatures, and then he shows what happens if you graphically plot it. It makes it really, really clear that if you try to launch this thing when the temperature was below freezing, which they ended up doing, it would almost guarantee there'd be a failure of some sort. Many people will also recall the astonishing demonstration that the late scientist Richard Feynman did at the congressional hearings that follow the disaster, he brought into the hearing, unbeknownst to the people interrogating him, one of the O-rings, and had a glass of ice water, dropped it in, took it out, and said, look, it's stiff, it's not flexible, it wouldn't work, and kind of proved it with such deceptive simplicity that it was just devastating as a demonstration. And we talk a lot about how to convey complex information on this podcast. And I think uh, two examples, you know, Ed Tufte sort of showing that you could take a lot of complex data and uh, render it much more understandable is one way, but there's just something about the performance that Feynman gave uh, in that hearing where he just demonstrated his legendary capacity to take complex scientific information and render it compelling and engaging and understandable to almost anyone that is just a great object lesson in that.
0: The design historian in me wants to know why, when you look at the cultural trajectory of what you so eloquently just described, that 1986 could give us the Challenger explosion, the subsequent eloquence of the hearing that you just so uh, uh, aptly described. And Super Hair Barbie (laughs) came
1: out in 1986. My God. So... Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. Our website is designobserver.com. If you go there, you can find links to things we discussed, including Popular Mechanics, Oral History of the Challenger Disaster, and more than any one person except for Jessica Halfen could ever want to know about Barbie. You can also <laughs> sign up for Taste, our symposium on food and visual culture at taste.designobserver.com
0: between episodes keep up with design observer on facebook
1: and on twitter you can subscribe to the observatory on itunes soundcloud or however you take your podcasts go to designobserver.com slash the observatory that's designobserver.com slash the observatory and if you're not listening already please tune into our other podcast design matters with debbie millen
0: teddy blanks wrote our theme music our producer is blake eskin thanks michael see you in los angeles
1: I cannot wait and I'll talk to you soon.